This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton, and me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. How should we commemorate those who died in warfare? Ought we to pay respect just to the soldiers killed on our side? Or to enemy soldiers too? And what of civilian casualties on both sides? All these issues tend to arouse powerful emotions. Cecil Tharp of All Souls College Oxford has been reflecting upon the connection between war and remembrance. Cecil Tharp, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thank you. The topic we're going to focus on today is remembrance, specifically remembrance in war. Let's just at the beginning get clear what remembrance is. So when I talk about remembrance in the context of war, I have in mind very simply practices such as the ceremony at the Cenotaph in London every year on Remembrance Sunday, or the custom of standing still for a two-minute silence at 11 o'clock in the morning on the 11th of November, certainly in this country, the UK, but in other countries as well. Presumably you also want to include the memorials, the physical objects, the stone memorials that are built. Yes, I do. So that's a very interesting dimension of remembrance. The memorials which we build, the plaques which we put on buildings to commemorate the fact that this particular event or atrocity took place on this particular date. But I also have in mind things like preserving historical monuments. So making sure, for example, that Auschwitz remains standing and doesn't crumble under the weight of time. So why do we do these things? What are they for? So I think if you were to ask people why we do those things, in fact, why we should do those things, most of them would say, well, look, those soldiers died for us. They were wounded for us and we owe them a debt of gratitude, which we repay, as it were, by remembering what they did for us. And presumably also not just soldiers, but civilians who die in war merit remembrance. Yes, so you're absolutely right that we do remember civilians, perhaps not as much as we should. We certainly ought to remember them. But here, again, we need to distinguish two different reasons for remembering civilians. We tend to remember either those civilians who were forbearers in the community. So in Britain, it would be, for example, the civilians who died in the bombing of London, the bombing of Coventry, and so on and so forth. So we think that these were victims at the hands of the enemy. But of course, we also tend to think that we ought to remember civilians who were victims at the hands of our own inner soldiers when those soldiers did commit atrocities against the enemy. That's interesting, that last point, because it's quite rare to encounter that kind of remembrance in a formal setting. You're absolutely right, but I think that we are making a mistake, actually, when we fail to remember it. It seems to me a very good example of a moral mistake of that kind is the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, which is an extraordinarily beautiful monument, but it is a monument to the memory of the American soldiers who died in that war. Now, I don't think I'm going out on a limb, you know, when I say that that war was a profoundly unjust war, but it is striking that the memorial makes no no mention whatsoever of the Vietnamese victims of those American soldiers. Wouldn't one explanation of that just be that it's a military memorial, so it's focused on that narrow range of people who were American military? 
So I'm sure that that's one important explanation as to why this particular memorial has this particular feature. But I think that we are kidding ourselves if we pretend that the military do not kill civilians. They do. And we might even say that in some cases it's permissible to kill civilians, certainly as collateral damage. But that is no reason at all, it seems to me, to erase them from our collective memory. If you commission a memorial that is to be installed in the capital city, and if therefore you have very good reasons to believe that that memorial will be seen as the national articulation of how this particular conflict ought to be best remembered, then you have a moral responsibility to make sure that you remember the right persons. That's really interesting. It's, it's suggesting that acts of memorial have built into them quite clear value systems. There's a sort of sense of judgment about the past event and who counts. I think that's absolutely right. So when you do those things, you have to think about the location of the memorial, who is going to be remembered in the memorial, what the memorial is going to look like. Is it going to look like militaristic victory figure? Is it going to picture and represent sorrow, sadness and grief? All those decisions have to be made. Are you saying that just focusing on military victims is worse than not having a a memorial at all? Well, it's a very controversial point, but I think I might want to say that in some cases, yes, it is worse. I mean, I'm not alone, actually, in saying that. You could argue that Siegfried Sassoon, whose poem on the Menin Gate is one of the best-known poems of the First World War, is making exactly that point. You know, what he objects to with respect to this particular memorial is that it glorifies the war and does not in any way say anything about its pointlessness, the horrors it inflicted on its participants, and so on and so forth. So he seems to draw the conclusion at the end of the poem, and I would agree, that in some cases, if you are going to remember, you must do it in the right way. And if for whatever reason you cannot do it in the right way, then you should abstain. Do you have any examples of people doing it in the right way? I have many examples of people doing it in the right way, but here is one example which picks up actually on your point about remembering civilians. So in the last 10 or 12 years or so, in Paris, every single primary and secondary school from which Jewish children were taken away during the occupation of the country by Germany to be sent to their deaths in concentration camps has to have a plaque on its wall explicitly to mention that particular fact. But what's interesting is that the plaque and the text is always the same. The plaque also mentions and must mention the fact that those children were taken away with the help and complicity of the French police. So it's an interesting example because it commemorates civilian victims, but it also commemorates what is particularly painful to French people about that, namely that the German occupation army would not have been able to do it on its own. It needed help from the French police to do that, and that strikes me as the right way to do it. That's quite a complicated example in a way, isn't it? Because it's also in an educational context. So there's a different role for commemoration. It's not just doing honour to people who are victims. It's actually passing something on to the next generation. Yes, I think you're right about that. So at the very beginning of our conversation, you asked me, why do we do those things? And I mentioned the gratitude argument, the argument to the effect that it's a way of atoning for wrongdoings committed in your name. But of course, those practices 
also do have an instrumental value, namely the value of educating future generations about the evil of war in general and particular kinds of atrocities. What about the examples of memorials to people who were military leaders who history judges to have committed atrocities? I'm thinking of someone like Bomber Harris, the RAF commander who orchestrated bombings, fire bombings over Dresden and other German cities, which are now generally recognised as atrocities. I think that's a very, very interesting case. Now, two ways of thinking about this. So you might ask, all right, so should we demolish existing memorials? That's the radical view. Or less radically, you might ask, should we build some more? And I've heard of a couple of initiatives actually along those lines. Clearly of the views that you shouldn't build more memorial to Harris and the RAF pilots, precisely because it's fairly uncontroversial now that those bombing campaigns would count as war crimes. I wouldn't want to go as far as to say that we should demolish existing memorials here and now. And that's partly because when we engage in remembrance practices, or indeed when we criticise current practices, we need to be very mindful of the consequences of such engagement would have. And it seems to me that in this country here today, people are not quite ready to accede to the demolition of existing monuments, such that if we were to go ahead and spend the resources towards demolishing those memorials, this might actually undermine valuable remembrance practices in which we might want to engage. However, my view commits me to the conclusion that in a hundred years from now, the time might well be ripe for actually getting rid of those memorials. After all, we see nothing problematic to formerly Eastern European countries demolishing statues of Lenin out of the recognition that what Lenin did, what he contributed to doing, can be characterised as one of the most grotesque perversions of dearly cherished ideals one can think of. But in the fog of war, moral clarity is difficult. So we can accept that soldiers will make mistakes. That's very different from the My Lai Massacre, where people clearly must have known they were doing something morally outrageous. Right. I mean, this is a good question because it forces me to qualify what I've just said. It's certainly true that we can't judge in the same way as harshly people who commit atrocities and of whom it can be said fairly plausibly that they couldn't really reasonably be expected to have known that what they did was an atrocity. And people who commit those atrocities, eyes open, in the full awareness and knowledge that what they are doing is profoundly wrong. Now, with respect to the former, we might say, well, what they did is profoundly wrong, but given the circumstances under which they act, they are not blameworthy for what they did. There might be space for remembering those actors, those individuals, and remembering them in such a way that does not occlude that what they did was grievously wrong, but which also recognises precisely that they were not blameworthy for doing it. Now, I don't think that we need more memorials to Bomber Harris and his men. I think we have quite enough those, thank you very much. But if there were a successful initiative, for example, a privately funded initiative to build one more, then I would say, well, that's fine. But you should at least, when you choose the inscription that's going to go on the memorial, you should write about or articulate the very, very important but deep ambiguity, you know, there. 
this is quite complex in what's going on here. There seem to be different strands of remembrances, celebration of something, an act of courage or giving up your life for a, a greater good. Sometimes it's an act of remembrance of something bad that's happened. Perhaps we should tease apart this idea of celebration and just recording. I think you're right, and I think it's very difficult to do in practices or on buildings where quite often economy of words or economy of gesture seems paramount, if only because you achieve greater symbolic force thanks to economy of words or economy of gestures. But I do think that the risks of doing it wrong, of doing it badly, are too high for us not to try harder than we currently are to give justice to the complexity of those issues. So here's one example. I don't think such a memorial exists, but suppose that we wanted to erect a memorial to commemorate people who died at the hands of child soldiers. And we know that there are several dozens of thousands of child soldiers, many of whom do actually commit unspeakable atrocities. Now, such a memorial should, it seems to me, first, honour the memory of the victims, second, not occlude the fact that children committed those atrocities, third, acknowledge that the circumstances under which they committed those atrocities are such that not only can they not be blamed for this, but, more strongly, they too are, in some sense, victims. It's not possible to do this in one sentence, you might need a longer piece of text. We've been talking about memorials, physical memorials, quite a lot. But of, of course, there is this practice of a minute's silence. And that seems to me to lend itself precisely to the kind of reflections that you've been talking about. Nobody is forcing me to think in a particular way. So if I revise my opinion of a particular figure or a particular war, I can meditate on that at that moment without any kind of forced hand there. I think that's right. That will give you space to internally dissent from the official narrative. At the same time, and at the risk of being overly facetious, it also gives you the space to think about the state of plumbing in your house. Now, I would think that there is something slightly wrong with that, with you know, thinking about the state of plumbing. That raises the very interesting issue of the emotional valence of war remembrance. When we talk about war remembrance, we're not simply saying, oh, we ought to bring into our mind the fact that the First World War started in the summer 1914 and that X million of people died. We are supposed to feel something about it. And the range of emotions that we are supposed to feel can be quite wide. You might think it's appropriate for some people to remember that war as an opportunity that they were given to learn new skills. And we know that some veterans certainly took that approach. We might think it's appropriate to feel grief at the loss of lives, rage at those losses as well. And in that private moment where you stand silent, there is a sense in which it's entirely up to you to tap into whatever emotions you think are appropriate. But it doesn't follow that that which you happen to feel in that moment is not amenable to moral evaluation. I might not know how you feel at 11 in the morning on the 11th of November, but if I were to know, it's still open to me to say, well, perhaps that's not the right kind of emotion. A lot of what you've said seems to presuppose that I have concern of a global kind, that I'm not just concerned with my own tribe, as it were. But some people are just concerned with their own tribe. In fact, that's the default position. We care about 
our location, our village, our city, our country, and our country is a pretty important thing that we want to defend. Why shouldn't we celebrate our country, be patriotic, think of our fallen young men and women who died for us? I have doubts about the exclusionary temptation. So let me um, illustrate the point by drawing a contrast between two very different war memorials inaugurated in the autumn of 2014. So the first one is the Pompey display at the Tower of London, which commemorated 800,000 plus Commonwealth soldiers who died in the First World War. So that was portrayed as a Commonwealth act of commemoration. Now, at roughly the same time, the French president, the German chancellor and the British prime minister together inaugurated a new memorial in northern France to the 500,000 soldiers or so who died in that part of the country during the First World War. But whereas the puppy display at the Tower of London commemorated Commonwealth soldiers, us, the empire, the French memorial lists in alphabetical order all the soldiers who died in that part of the country, irrespective of nationality, including German and Austrian soldiers. So I'm a cosmopolitan, and as a cosmopolitan, I believe that there is an important, profound sense in which political and national borders are or ought to be morally irrelevant to the ways in which we treat other human beings. So as a cosmopolitan, I am drawn towards the French memorial as distinct from the British memorial, precisely because the French memorial tries to articulate that across those very deep conflictual differences between Britain and France on the one hand and Germany and Austria on the other hand, there was shared humanity. Humanity shared, that is, by the soldiers who fought on the opposing sides. But as a cosmopolitan, I also think that I have reasons to remember wars and atrocities within war, which, in a phrase used by Michael Walzer, shock the conscience of mankind. Genocides are a paradigmatic example, but also the two world wars, precisely because there were global wars. So I don't think I ought, as a French and British dual citizen, be preoccupied only with commemorating the wars in which those two countries were engaged. And I should say for the sake of our audience that we are here in All Souls, which is a memorial itself to the English soldiers who died in the 100 years war against France. I don't think my concern should be exclusively to remember those lives. But I think that I have very strong more reasons to assist in the remembrance and commemoration of genocides, of any atrocity that has occurred in any war at any time. It's a very demanding view of the ethics of remembrance, but I think that this is what cosmopolitans are committed to. Unlike lots of philosophy, this is a, a topic which has serious practical impact. There are real questions for politicians, for ordinary people, how they should act when there is a public ceremony that remembers war. I think that's right. But what I've noticed whenever I've talked about those issues, people react in very personal ways. And I think it's partly because we all have in our family stories of war. You know, my dad fought in that war, my grandfather was conscripted and so on and so forth. And what I find really, really interesting about this particular topic is that it weaves together the personal and the political and the moral in a way that few other topics, it seems to me, do. 
I mean, I'd like to give you a personal familial anecdote. My family has owned a house in Normandy for a number of years now, and that house was requisitioned by the German army during the occupation between 1940 and 1944. I'm told that they turned it into a brothel. Now, about four years ago, one of my uncles started doing building work in the house, and he found blank invoices in between the floorboards, which had been dropped you know, negligently by the German soldiers. And as a family, we all were very shocked and intrigued by this, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. When I go to that house, which I know very well, I always think about the fact that it was requisitioned by the German army. It's part of the fabric of my childhood. And to find those pieces of paper was quite amazing because it became very real somehow that there had been people, the enemy, you know, living, breathing, having sex. And that's one example of the way in which when we think about remembering wars, we think about our own houses, our own family members, you know, our own personal you know, memories, which together form the collective memory that we try to honour by having the two-minute silence, building yet another monument, you know, standing at the cenotaph and so on and so forth. Cecil Farb, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.